Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. This week's episode is all about my five years and counting one-man project called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And I want to talk to you about how I got started, the incredible women that I've met, the lessons I've learned from them, and even share some words directly from one of the incredible women that I've met. But for starters, I'd like to sort of introduce the transition from traditional activism to this type of direct relief action on the street. And I'm going to tell you about that right after this short break. Hello, Postwoke listeners. Mickey Z here, inviting you to check out my Substack at mickeyz.substack.com. You can become a free email subscriber there, and that will give you access to all of my public podcasts and articles. But you also have the option for as little as $5 a month to become a paid subscriber. That will get you premium content, the ability to comment on all of my posts, and the knowledge that you are really helping to make this project grow. I do need paid subscribers, and I very much appreciate any of you who could do so, or at least spread the word to others who might be able to do so. If you are not in a position financially, please, by all means, sign up as a free subscriber, get the content, let me know what you think, and get involved, because we want to gather as many people to this uh, open-minded community of listeners practicing the art of intellectual self-defense. So again, it's mickeyz.substack.com, and I hope to see you there soon. I had just finished working with a personal training client up near Central Park before hopping on a downtown R train. Over my shoulder was a canvas bag holding several packs of food and supplies for homeless women on the streets of Manhattan. I deboarded the R train at 34th Street and slowly strolled in the shadow of Macy's, the world's largest store, my eyes scanning the landscape. I mean, there are homeless men everywhere and they're not hard to find. They're men, after all. They will literally impose themselves into your space and colonize their immediate surroundings. Like I said, they're men. Homeless women, on the other hand, can virtually be invisible. And that's a big reason why I started this project back in October of 2016. Anyway, as I approached 7th Avenue, I recognized a familiar sound, a sound that could once make my rebellious heart skip a beat, the rhythmic chanting of a protest in process. A few, a few more steps and I could make out the words, one ugly woman, 50 dead animals. Yep, it was an anti-fur demo, ostensibly designed to challenge the policies of the world's largest store. In precisely the same instant, my awareness honed in on two people. To my right, crouched into a long sealed Macy's doorway was a young homeless woman. Directly in front of me strolled a middle-aged white woman in a fur coat, snickering with her friends about the crazies. Clearly, she had been the target of the protesters' misogynist rage. After a fleeting contemplation of activist tactics, I focused on the homeless woman, of course. She was curled up close to the famous Christmas windows where dozens of tourists were blissfully snapping selfies, but I couldn't see her face. The words she had scrawled on a piece of cardboard began, My name is Amber. 
I crouched down and said, excuse me, three times before Amber peeked out with one eye from under her stained hoodie. With a friendly smile, I showed her the bag and explained how she might be able to use its contents. She nodded and reached for it. The movement revealed a tiny bit more of Amber's face. She was blonde, very young, very petite, and clearly had been crying a lot. It's heartbreaking and downright frightening how often I see the younger homeless girls only once. Homeless women in general may be invisible, but some of them are quite visible to the male predators roaming the streets. Encountering Amber on that Sunday brought me to tears. I wondered if I would ever cross paths with her again. After our interactions, I stood back up and snuck a glance at the anti-fur protest, making certain I wasn't seen. You see, I was once their hero their articulate and charismatic spokesman. I never miss such, such actions, even if it meant wearing multiple layers of clothes and toe warmers. I promoted these events, helped with the setup, took and shared photos, went out to eat with them afterwards, and even gave talks, often for free, at related gatherings. Just a few years earlier, in fact, I was the featured speaker at a screening of an anti-fur film at Blue Stockings Bookstore, a venue in which I no longer feel welcome. The animal rights scene adored me until I started questioning their tactics and their internal dysfunctions and worse. Those activists built entire identities around the belief that they were dedicated warriors in a battle to empty every cage. Challenging the groupthink got me outcast, slandered, and threatened. This even included some rather creative death threats from the Ahimsa crowd. Looking back, sure, I could have chosen my words and my battles more judiciously, but I stand by my challenges and my ongoing evolution. And I still do. After all, this is what led me to create Helping Homeless Women NYC. Since starting this project, I've been interviewed countless times, and that involves print newspapers to television. And so what I've done now is I've created five frequently asked questions. They're sort of composites in the hope that my answers to them will help explain to you why I do what I do and also and perhaps most importantly, empower you to consider starting your own type of project for whatever cause lights you up. So let's get started. First one, why homeless women? Why did you go from being a nonstop, high-profile activist to this one-man direct action mission specifically for homeless women? Well, for my entire life, I have tried to help homeless people. For years, I wrote for Street News, a once popular advocacy newspaper mostly produced and sold by homeless people in New York City. I've also spoken at rallies in support of homeless people from coast to coast. And I've never, ever leave my house without a pocket full of change to give out a little something to every homeless person that I encountered, always making eye contact and wishing them luck. Now, in activism, we like to imagine that we're standing up for the oppressed. Of course, we're not above pretending we are the oppressed. Usually, we just end up speaking for the oppressed as we perform for each other. Finally, in 2016, I decided to directly ask the most oppressed group in the world, women, what they want, what they need, and how I can help. And I've done my best to deliver. I can't end poverty. I can't end patriarchy but I can make a small difference in the daily lives of some of the most fierce and amazing women you'll ever meet. I've never felt more useful or more motivated. Next question, why did you start your own program? So let me first say that 
I use my program in answering these questions only as an example, not because it's perfect. Obviously, it's not and never will be, but it is the only project I could speak about with authority and experience. That said, I'll ask you to consider how common and relatively easy it is to find an established project and volunteer for a day. A far, far bigger, and I dare say more meaningful commitment is to start your own program. As I said above, it doesn't have to be for the homeless. You may write letters to and visit prisoners, or perhaps you bring toys to children stuck inside domestic violence shelters. You could feed all the stray cats in your neighborhood on a daily basis. Just ask yourself, what lights you up? What keeps you up at night? Where does your deepest passion lie? And what unique gifts and skills do you possess? By creating your own program, you have no choice but to do most or all of the physical and emotional labor yourself. The fundraising, the bookkeeping, everything is your responsibility. This reality forces you to commit, to hold yourself accountable, to inhabit the project 24 hours a day, and to, not, and to keep going even during those times when you just don't feel like it. And yes, that happens. It's not weakness to get tired or to need a break. Self-care is crucial. But when you are the sole driving force behind a mission, you will not allow yourself to waver. Homelessness is only going to keep getting worse. Hence, we helpers must keep getting better. Question three. What if I'm afraid that some homeless women will just use my money on drugs? Well, I have a huge request. Keep those assumptions to yourself. There, there is absolutely no need to loudly verbalize that you think a homeless woman has a substance abuse problem. If it's true, your comment will change nothing. If it's not true, you're basically kicking someone while they're already down. As one woman, homeless woman told me, do people think their insults will help me in any way? I'm already at the lowest point in my life. Comments like these can only make me feel worse. So once you give any type of gift, not just to a homeless woman, but to anyone, you must relinquish control over the use of that gift. If you don't, it's not a gift. It's a transaction. On a related note, I can report that when I watch a homeless woman's belongings while she finds a bathroom, passersby often assume that I'm homeless. And it's quite educational to watch the people passing and how they react to me. And yeah, I've had more than a few sneers and wisecracks aimed in my directions. So a suggestion, refrain from voicing your negative opinions to homeless women and instead find another way to use your skills and resources to help other humans or non-humans in need. Next question, what if I can't always give something? How else can I show support? Well, you can always smile or nod or do something nice to remove the veil of invisibility. Paying attention to a homeless woman or anyone is a priceless gift. To borrow from the poet Mary Oliver, to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. By paying attention over the past five years, I've heard incredible stories and shared moments I would never had the opportunity to share. I've comforted a woman who still blames herself for the death of her child many years ago. I've defended women against harassers on the street. I've shared uproarious laughter and tears of utter despair. I've been told over and over again some version of this. It's just so nice to know that someone is out there thinking about me. 
I've given birthday hugs, gotten to know non-human companions, and protected belongings when women needed to find a bathroom. None of that, quote-unquote, costs anything. And question number five. Do you feel that your efforts are very much appreciated? Now, I'm always glad to get a question like this because many, if not most, homeless women are victims of domestic abuse and or sexual violence. They are living on the street or in a shelter and have become even more vulnerable. Don't expect effusive displays of gratitude or long conversations if that's not what they're willing to give. This may happen, but the goal isn't to boost our egos. We're here to help and not to set parameters on how that help must be accepted, if accepted at all. I've been ignored and shooed away by some homeless women. In other instances, my efforts elicit a quick thank you and zero eye contact. I do not take this personally or allow it to color my future interactions with these women. I can never understand their struggle, so my aim is to be useful, not praised. After this short break, I'll tell you a story about one homeless woman in particular. There are so many homeless women I could tell you about, so many stories. And then there are the countless stories that I will never tell because they are too private and in some cases too harrowing and heartbreaking. But this one, it has its fair share of heartbreak in it, but um, I do want to share this because she's very comfortable with sharing her story. Um, I haven't spoken to her in years, but for a while, a woman named Bree was a regular for me. I went to see her all the time near Union Square Park. Um, she had lost both her legs in a subway accident. By the time I met her, she was living in a medical homeless shelter, but panhandling daily in a wheelchair. She has four kids who for a while were living with her abusive ex. It was not a good scenario. So very long story short, the state eventually took the kids away from him and temporarily placed them with Bree's mother. As I got to know Brie, I genuinely cared for her as a friend. We both looked forward to chatting whenever I'd bring packages full of supplies geared to fit her specific needs. I bore witness to her journey and encouraged her as she dealt with mean-spirited passers-by, passers some actually screaming to her in her wheelchair to get a job. And she also dealt with mountains of obstacles like housing and child services and medical bureaucracies and lawyers and etc. But one year, just before the holidays, Bree learned that she was finally going to get housing in upstate New York and get her kids back. She was so excited to have Christmas with all of them for the first time in many years. I knew I had to do something special to commemorate Bree's holiday reunion with her kids and to say goodbye. So I rallied the support of some online donors and friends to raise money for gift certificates. After ensuring that all the establishments, including an art store, an art supply store specifically for Bree's oldest daughter, who dreamt of becoming an artist. I made sure all these establishments were wheelchair accessible, and I proudly presented the donations to Bree. She opened the envelope, saw nearly $200 in gift cards, and burst into tears, waving me in for a hug. We stayed that way, both of us weeping for quite a while. Bree whispered to me over and over, you're my angel. When I tell you that I felt pure euphoria in that moment, I am not exaggerating. I wasn't the one getting the gifts. 
I wasn't the one who was now ready for an epic Christmas reunion, but I was as happy as I'd ever been in my life. Also, it, I, it was as useful and effective as I've ever felt in my life. And I knew I did the right thing by leaving activism behind. Since I'm focusing on my project during this particular episode, I want to let you know how you can get involved and how you can support the work that I do. Uh, check out the show notes to find the link to my GoFundMe for Helping Homeless Women NYC. That link you can make cash donations at any time. Also in the show notes, you'll see that I have an Amazon wish list, and primarily on that list are restaurant gift cards, which I've learned through experience and from talking with the women are really deeply appreciated gifts because they can use them at their own discretion and rate. They can get indoors out of the elements. They can use a bathroom, and the feedback has been incredible in terms of using them as a gift. Also on the wish list, I believe there are a couple of other items like socks, for example, so check that out. And lastly, it would be epic if any of you would consider committing to a monthly pledge at the Patreon that I've created for this project. Uh, the way it works, in case you're not familiar with Patreon, is that you pick the amount and it will be automatically donated to my project every month at no extra work for you. And I get to have a better idea each month of what my budget would be. So to start that process, again, check out the show notes. But no matter what, whether you can afford to donate or not, I will heartily request that you spread the word share the links that are in the show notes let them know about this project five years and counting and what i do and help me increase my donor base and reach more people so i appreciate that i appreciate you listening and let's get back to the show okay i'm here with kate on the streets of astoria and she's been kind enough to join me to talk about um what it's like to be homeless and in the context of my project is help homeless women. So first, Kate, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course, thank you. And my my first question would be, I'm, I know from doing this project that the women that I've helped have told me that there are so many misconceptions and myths that people have about being homeless. And so could you just touch on a couple of them and kind of clarify what reality is so that people get a better idea and be educated about this situation? Um, well, first I would say that, you know, we all don't choose this lifestyle, that we're kind of all thrown into it more. Um, we're not, we're not all drug addicts. We don't do, you know what I mean? We're all, we're clean, a lot of us. Um, uh, I would say that... Well, for example, like, like when someone yells, passing, a passing car and someone rudely yells out, get a job. How easy is it for a homeless person to get a job, honestly? It's really, really, really hard. You would need, you know, you need to be inside. You need to be clean. You need, um, you, you, so much work. It actually is a lot of work to, you know, to get a job on the streets. You know, people don't trust you, you know. You, you need can, a permanent address, I would assume, too, right? You need a permanent address. You need, you need a shower every day. You need clean clothes. You need, you need a lot more than what people think. And then... Another question related to that is when some homeless people do get housing, uh, people will assume that, oh, now their problems are solved. But many, many cases you wind up coming back out panhandling because housing is just one step in the journey. You still it have is. to make money, right? It is. Yep. You, you can't. Yeah. You need a job. You need. And you know what I mean? People, it's not always easy to get a job. It's not. Sometimes it takes a while, you know? Yeah. 
And you would think people would understand that because homeless or not homeless, it's not easy to get a job. Yeah. And yet they somehow imagine that you could just pick up and go. And when I'm sure people come by and they may give you a generous donation and then they kind of think that they've solved your problem with that donation, yes. right? Yes. What's 100%. That like? Yeah, they just think that if they give you five bucks, like, why are you still out here on the street? <laughs> they just don't understand. It's it's way more to it than that. Yeah, and so their heart is in the right place. You're not criticizing yeah, them. No. It's just that we all kind of grow up with these preconceptions. Like, we, we don't know what it's like to be homeless unless you have been homeless. And so we just assume we do. And so we see you day in and day out and just think that you don't want to get off the street but homeless yeah. people want to get off the street is that safe that, to say yes yes we yes we would love to get off the street okay. it's not as easy as everybody thinks okay and so just to wrap up is, is there anything else you'd want to share with people about about the type of help that you would need or just what is there anything else you just want them to know about the struggle of I what mean, you're going through i feel like the the system is kind of broken like they're you know like everything's about money the shelter system's broken you can't have animals in shelters and it's it's like all you know they automatically think that like once you get into a shelter you should get a job and all that but like it's they don't make it easy to get into a shelter anymore anyways so and many of them aren't safe and many of them aren't safe yeah. yeah it's like it's just so you just get on this endless cycle that to the outside world looks like you're not trying but you're trying your ass off yeah Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I no, really appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Okay, it's my pleasure. <laughs> I'll be right back with some statistics and commentary on the big picture of homelessness. If you ride the New York City subways long enough, you will eventually hear this robotic announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, soliciting money in the subway is illegal. We ask you not to give. Please help us maintain an orderly subway. My response is define orderly, because according to the Coalition for the Homeless, homelessness in New York City has in recent years reached the highest level since the Great Depression of the 1930s. If that is order, please give me chaos. In August of 2021, there were 47,916 homeless people, including nearly 15,000 homeless children sleeping each night in the New York City municipal shelter system. Families comprise more than three quarters of the homeless shelter population. Is that what orderly looks like in the home of the brave? And seriously, who knows how many are really without homes outside and beyond the insufficient shelter system. When I used to write for Street News, the editor was a formerly homeless man, and he would tell me that official counts are laughable. If you know where to look, he'd say, you'll find twice as many homeless people in New York City. Lack of affordable housing, cuts in social services, an epidemic of foreclosures, and myriad jobs shipped permanently overseas, plus, of course, the devastating but unnecessary COVID lockdowns. It's a perfect storm for an ever-increasing homeless population. And homelessness tends to disproportionately impact specific groupings of humans, starting with those living with mental illness or other severe health problems. Poverty and health issues have become so intertwined that cause often becomes effect. Poverty is defined as living 200% below the United States federal poverty level. And those within this category 
have been determined to lose 8.2 years of health. By the way, the federal poverty level is about $26,000 per year for a family of four. That's generally viewed as about half the income needed for that family to have basic financial security. Children in low-income families start off with higher levels of antisocial behavior than children from more advantaged households. Disabilities, whether directly linked to poverty or not, leave American children vulnerable to a lifetime of financial difficulties. I remember giving a talk in Santa Cruz, California, in defense of the homeless, and I said, don't think homelessness can't happen to you. And I urged everyone in attendance to consider how slippery that slope can be. We all live on the proverbial edge, some more than others, of course, and the economic system slash dominant culture by design does not offer much of a safety net. Thanks to corporate propaganda, we're programmed to ignore the vast and corrupt enterprise of corporate welfare and to falsely believe that the poor in America are lazy leeches coddled by an enabling nanny state. Contrary to such mendacious manipulation, 55% of children living in poor or low-income families have a parent who works full-time year-round. Children make up 26% of the U.S. population, but are 39% of the people who live in poverty. The poverty rate is higher for children than any other age group. Children and families are the fastest growing group among the homeless, making up 40% of the homeless population. How quickly is this group growing? Consider this, one out of every seven U.S. children are born into poverty. 2.5 million U.S. children are currently homeless. That's one in 30. And 83% of those homeless children experience violence before the age of 12. We all know the official response to this preventable nightmare, but what is the radical response to poverty, homelessness, gentrification, and the demonization and marginalization of those who are impacted? My suggestion? Choose to see the homeless. Choose to see yourself in the homeless. Choose to connect with the homeless, as I've done for more than five years. In a culture that relentlessly warns us that the homeless are lazy, the homeless are crazy, the homeless are dangerous, the homeless are lurking in every dark alley or just waiting to push us in front of a subway train, I submit that it's downright revolutionary to reject this indoctrination and connect. It's a subversive act to make eye contact. It's a form of rebellion to start a conversation. It's a mini revolution to make a friend. The top 1% are counting on us. They're depending on us, being too scared to make this happen. But what sounds more frightening to you? Taking a chance on a fellow human being or enabling a social order that treats most lives, human and non-human, as expendable? The author Arundhati Roy once said this about atrocity awareness. Quote, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you've seen it, keeping quiet, saying nothing, becomes as political an act as speaking out. There is no innocence. Either way, you are accountable. Close quote. So I implore you, please open your eyes and see. See yourself in every living thing that suffers under this oppressive and inequitable system. And if you can't find a reason to fight for yourself, then do it for them. I'll be right back with my story of the week.
It was a Sunday in early December, and I was out helping homeless women as per my project. I noticed a homeless woman on the downtown platform of a cavernous New York City subway station. She was standing directly in front of an empty wooden bench, apparently facing the bench with a massive plastic bag over her hair, and I assumed that she had dreadlocks beneath that. It was difficult to ascertain precisely in which direction she was looking, but she was clearly rocking as if in prayer or meditation. Passersby gave no impression that they noticed or even saw her. So I inched closer and barely whispered, excuse me? Her head snapped up in an instant, not startled or angry. It felt more like she was expecting me. Her eyes sparkled and her smile illuminated the dank underground environs. Her features are, are what you might call delicate. She maintained direct eye contact with me, but remained silent. I felt a sense of absolute calm. I thought perhaps you could use some of what's in this bag, I whispered as I held out a small cloth bag filled with food and supplies. She took the bag and gazed at it as if it were a gift from the heavens. Then she spoke in a gentle island accent. Thank you, she said as she returned her gaze to mind. You, you understand the message, H-E-L-P. It should be broadcast everywhere. It should be playing in all the theaters. Everyone must hear it. It is our only chance. It's the only thing we can do until God returns. I felt myself overflowing with emotions as I stared at her. She held the bag up, smiled and repeated, thank you. Oh no, I stammered, thank you. Not wanting to overstay my welcome, I began to back away, but not before adding, please be safe out here. I am safe and will remain safe, she replied in a clear, confident voice before offering a blessing that gave me goosebumps, as will you. After my first meeting with this homeless witch prophet, I began looking for her as I made my rounds. And soon enough, on yet another Sunday, as I was walking through yet another labyrinthine subway system, there she was. She was standing near a staircase, one level up from the trains, again, leaning forward, gently rocking, plastic bag on her head. Again, passersby gave no impression that they noticed or even saw her. I subdued my excitement so I could approach slowly and respectfully. When I got to within a couple of feet, I could see that the plastic bag was slightly askew and thus revealed what appeared to be the roots of her dreadlocks. I unexpectedly discovered that her hair is what we might call salt and pepper. I don't know how old I believed her to be, but she appeared ageless in our initial encounter. Excuse me? Again, her head snapped up. When she saw me, she clasped her hands in front of her heart and an almost imperceptible, oh, slipped from her mouth. Hi, I exclaimed, no longer attempting to hide my excitement. She pointed at me and said, I knew you'd come back. I brought this for you, I declared, handing her a small handbag of supplies. She smiled and closed her eyes for a few seconds. When she opened them, her eyes were wide and vibrant. I feel God's love here, she stated. With her right hand, she reached up and made a motion like pulling the string to turn on a light. I can feel God's love here between us. Do you? Yes, I certainly can, I replied. She smiled and looked into my eyes. Once again, I felt as if we were somehow alone in the frenetic train station. I'm happy to see you, I said. I've looked for you. 
Look for me again on the 29th, she responded. I promise I will. I'm Mickey, what's your name? I am Theodora. Side note, Theodora means God's gift. Theodora reached out her hand as I did. I felt a little choked up as I felt her wise energy in her touch. I'll see you on the 29th, I promised, as I inched away. Theodora held the bag up and said, thank you, Mickey. I looked and looked for Theodora on December 29th and every December 29th since then. I covered every inch of the two subway stations at which we spoke. I still have not seen her. I even had a, I've even carried around a special gift for her, a beautiful, colorful, decorative scarf. And I still carry it with me every time I go out to the city, hoping to see my inscrutable friend. Although I must admit, I sometimes wonder if she was more apparition than flesh and bone. Who knows if I'll ever cross paths with Theodora again. Either way, I often think of her and I could still feel the connection that was somehow there between two random strangers in a random malodorous and teeming subway station on a random Sunday in a random December. And I feel divinely blessed. That does it for episode seven of Post Woke. I appreciate you listening, and I very much hope you'll consider supporting my project and sending a donation if you can, but no matter what, spread the word, share the links, help me reach more people with the work that I'm doing. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find my email address in the show notes, and I will be back next week with possibly with the return of Allison Gray. Um, so thank you so much, as always, for listening. Keep questioning, and no matter what, keep your guard up.